Engage quantum drive. Hey now, and welcome to Quantum Drive. I'm Rob. I'm Katie. And our ongoing mission is to discuss every episode of The Orville. Today, we'll be discussing Season 3, Episode 6, Twice in a Lifetime, which was written by Seth MacFarlane and directed by John Kassar. We do have a new review. What? For this episode. This one comes in from Monk Johnson, who says, What a find! As someone that has tried and failed to get into Star Trek, I was surprised to absolutely love the Orville. With that, I was needing my Orville fix between season three episodes, and I went on a mission for an Orville pod. Giving up after minutes on a couple other ones, I stumbled onto yours, and I've already binged nearly all the episodes. You guys really are a credit to the Orville universe. I love that you don't agree on everything. Lieutenant Dan is great, by the way. Yes! Not a Dan fan. (laughs) A big Dan fan. (laughs) (laughs) But you also bring a perfect balance and dynamic to your take on each episode. Keep doing what you're doing. And with hope, I look forward to your podcasts of Orville spinoffs in the future. In the future. Oh, that's a great one. Also, I'm a big fan of Lieutenant Dan. So the the number of us are growing, Rob, and we'll soon overtake (laughs) you. So (laughs) I think you're probably overtaking me already and have been the whole time. (laughs) I'm pretty sure you're you're kind of in the minority about Lieutenant Dan. I I think I am, yeah. (laughs) But us not a Dan fans are totally fine with season three. (laughs) Listen, we could all use some more Dan. That's one thing Mark said to me. He's like, you know, I miss Dan. Like, I'm like, me too. Maybe he'll have his own feature episode. Like one of these feature length ones just about Dan. Don't. Just don't. Do you know how excited I would be? I would have a blanket. I'd get popcorn. I would make a night of it. But thank you. That is from John in Scotland. (gasps) Hi, John in Scotland. Thank you for your review. It means a lot. I know I say it every episode, but it really does make my day. Yeah, it's fantastic. When there's like reviews and stuff. It's neat to hear what people are thinking about what we do. Absolutely. If you'd like to let us know how we're doing, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star written review. And there's a good chance we're going to end up reading it here on the podcast. If you'd like to email us, you can do so by sending an email to quantumdrive at thegeekgeneration.com. You can follow us on Twitter at quantumdrivepod. You can join the Discord at thegeekgeneration.com slash Discord. And if you'd like access to Mark's alternate one-sentence reviews, you can support the show on Patreon at thegeekgeneration.com slash support. And we've got some other content coming to the Patreon in the near future, so I highly recommend that you check it out. Before we get into the episode discussion, Katie has trivia. I sure do. I feel like I say that every time. I sure do. (laughs) Well, we've got our patterns. It's fine. We do. We have patterns at this point. First up, the song Scott Grimes sings at the beginning of this episode was featured in the episode Lasting Impressions, which I believe is one of Rob's favorite episodes. I'm a bit of a fan of it, yeah. But it is also a song entitled That's All I've Got to Say from the movie The Last Unicorn. Yeah. I've never seen The Last Unicorn. Rob and I were talking about this because Rob helped me figure out where the song was from. I have seen The Last Unicorn, although when I watched it, that song didn't jump out to me. Like my only association with that song is this show. And I only had this song thinking it was from this show. I didn't actually know (laughs) it was from anything else. 
That was new to me. Scott Grimes is also a musician, which I think we've seen featured in past episodes, Mm -hmm. but I dug a little deeper into his past with music making. He started singing when he was a kid. He's known for co-writing and performing the soft rock single Sunset Boulevard, which spent several weeks on the Billboard charts. Oh, wow. And he's also one of four singers in Russell Crowe's band Indoor Garden Party. That I feel like I had heard before. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was really neat. And also, Scott Grimes' first music album was just simply titled Scott Grimes, just self-titled, and it was released by A&M Records in 1989. Oh, cool. I kind of want to look into that now. I know. I kind of want to get on Spotify. I hope it's on Spotify because then I can Mm. just like pull it up while I'm working and listen to some Scott Grimes tunes because he's got a beautiful voice. He really does. Yeah. Yeah. There's a point in this episode where the Kalon show up and there's a couple ships that get blown up. I don't know if you noticed that at all. Oh, yeah. Ships go boom. (laughs) Ships go boom. And Rob sent me a screenshot and I was like, wait a second. There is a name on that piece of ship hurtling towards the Orville. Mm -hmm. And the name of the ship seems to be Costantino, like Tom Costantino, you know, producer and editor for the show. Yeah. So I think Rob found a secret Easter egg. Yeah, as soon as I saw that coming toward the screen, I knew I would have to pause it later Mm -hmm. because that is a perfect place to hide something. And it was a place that something was hid. So, uh, I mean, on the YouTube, I'll pull up a little screenshot and uh, put it up so people can see it. But that was a good find, Rob. I was doing another pause and read on another screen, which was (laughs) Gordon Malloy's obituary that they feature, which was so sad. Yeah. Just like seeing his like picture where they aged him and everything. but. I immediately made a note to that I needed to pause and read this. So I thought I'd read a little bit of it to give some fun facts about Gordon Malloy and his life on Earth from 2015 on. Okay. Apparently, he died peacefully at his home in Pasadena, California. He was an exceptionally skilled pilot and maintenance mechanic for a local charter airline. He moved to Pasadena from rural Connecticut in 2018 and married his beloved wife, Laura Huggins, a singer and teacher the following year. Little is known of Mr. Malloy's life before he moved to Pasadena. According to acquaintances, he earned his private pilot's license in his late teens and was largely self-taught as an aircraft mechanic. Colleagues describe him as one of the most intuitive and insightful aerospace specialists they have ever known. With a knowledge of engines, aerodynamics, and electronic flight systems surpassing that of many graduates of top-tier universities. In a career spanning more than three decades, Malloy logged some 25,000 flight hours in a variety of commercial and experimental aircraft. He was certified to fly Contra, rotating twin propeller planes, single twin and triple engine jets, and late in his career, hypersonic trans-atmospheric vehicles powered by liquid hybrid solid and metallic hydrogen-fueled rocket motors. Jeez. I love that because I'm like, that's future tech. Yeah. I wonder how much he had to hold back because he knows so much of what's coming. And obviously you can't influence technology in that way. But he influenced other things. That's oh, yeah. for sure. <laughs> One of the last bits on this paragraph says his favorite flying machine was a single seat jet powered stunt plane he designed and built himself. And it goes on. And I have screenshots from both of them. The only other thing I wanted to highlight is his wife, Laura, described him as a homebody and a bit of a prankster. Yeah. And I just thought totally that was Gordon. sweet. If you're interested in the life that Gordon led on Earth after going back in time, I think it's a fun way to insert that into the episode without actually getting a chance to show it. Yeah. And I think about the fact, too, that somebody had to actually write that. Mm-hmm. There was one thing in here, which I was like, is this a continuity error? 
but I have questions about. It says he is survived by his wife, Laura, his son, Edward, and two granddaughters. But she was pregnant. I noticed that too. So that was the only thing which I wonder if they made a decision later, like, oh, we're going to make Laura pregnant. But I'm like, oh, no, did something happen to the baby? It could have been either or. Yeah, it could be a continuity error or something did happen to the baby and it didn't survive. And that's the thing about it is because we don't know what happened and anything could happen. It's, it very well could not be a continuity error and could just be something happened. And I don't, I don't want to think about that. But that was something I noticed when I was reading this as well. The word continuity is very much in flux with a time travel episode anyway. So yeah, it's true. Like, I mean, continuity is important, but sometimes in time travel, things get a little wobbly, I think. For sure. <laughs> All right, let's move on to guest stars. And first up is Graham Hamilton. And he does the voice of a Kalon in this episode. He has played the Kalon primary in Identity Part 1 and 2. And I never looked into him before, but he also plays a main character in the video game Twin Mirror, which I've actually played. Oh, okay. It's like one of those decision-based Life is Strange type games. Yeah, from the same devs as Life is Strange, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, no way. He was in that. And then he's done a ton of voice work, lots of video games, lots of TV and movie. And apparently, he was also the body double of Luke Skywalker in the book of Boba Fett. Oh, no way. That's cool. Because they do like the deep fake type deal mm-hmm. on that, right? Which they do a lot now in TV. Yeah. Which scares me because I know deep fakes are kind of bad in real life, but like the way they are applied to TV and movies, I'm like, oh, you can like literally insert anyone at any age into a movie now. It's wild. Yeah. Yeah. So I just thought that was super neat. And he was only in this for when they come up on the screen to say, yep. surrender the device. Up next is Leeton Meester, and she's back playing Laura. And returning from the episode Lasting Impressions. And notably, she's been in Gossip Girl as Blair Waldorf and How I Met Your Father as Meredith. Yeah. Good to see Leighton Meester back. Yeah. There is a fake TV show in this episode. (laughs) And there are two actors you might recognize in it. One being Jack McBrayer, who was from 30 Rock as Kenneth, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, and then Johnny Knoxville of Jackass fame. Yeah. Kind of surprised to see both of them in this, but I want to see this sitcom. I want a full episode. (laughs) I'm curious how much thought and preparation goes into writing the dialogue for a fake sitcom that you're only going to show like a small portion of. I love Jack McBrayer. So getting to see him in this, he's in so much when I was going through his Internet Movie Database. You have got to have seen him in something over the years if you consume any sort of entertainment at all. And Johnny Knoxville, I grew up in that era Mm -hmm. and he's, I feel like, legendary in a certain way. So you see him, you're like, oh, that's Johnny Knoxville. But some people might not know that. Jackson Lee Hill, who played Gordon's son, Edward, in this episode, has just a few credits to his name. But I had to mention this. He starred in the TV show Pam and Tommy that kind of was big and controversial about Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee. Mm-hmm. He played young Rand, and that was the child version of Seth Rogen's character, who is another major character in this TV show. Okay. Yeah, I haven't seen it, so. I watched part of it. I never finished it. Mm-hmm. Last but not least is Ryan O'Flanagan, who played the young biker hitting on Charlie. Okay. He's a comedian, and I thought he looked super familiar. I don't know what I know him from, but he's been in a ton of things, including American Vandal, which is a satire true crime documentary on Netflix. Okay, It's about like somebody in high school who's spray painting phallic images on things. And it's kind of like a joke documentary. And I think I may have seen him in that. But he's also done voices on American Dad. And he's on a Paramount Plus show called Players, 
which is a show that follows esports about a League of Legends team looking to win their first championship. Oh my goodness. I had no idea that existed. Nor and so I. at first I was like, oh, is this a documentary about esports? And then I was like, no, it's a show about esports. So you may have seen him there. He's also, he's done a ton of stuff as well. But those are all the fun facts and guest stars from this episode. Okay. Moving into the episode itself. During a party in his quarters, Gordon is gracing the crew with a performance of That's All I've Got to Say, a song we last heard him perform with the holographic Laura Huggins in the episode Lasting Impressions. Isaac attempts to talk to Ensign Burke, but she immediately blows him off. He then asks Lamar how to start conversations, to which he suggests asking questions about their interests or complimenting them. Charlie asks Gordon about a cell phone he keeps as a memento to remember Laura, and the two take a selfie with Bordis. Selfie is one of my favorite things with Bordis attempting to smile. <laughs> Love that moment. That. Yeah. yeah, that was great. Do you think it's weird that he just has the cell phone laying out and not in a safe space? Like, I don't know, put in a drawer somewhere. I guess it's... Well, he did say it was a synthesized version. It's not the actual phone. That's true. So I guess if something happened to it, he could just yeah. go get another one made. Yeah. And the party seemed fun. Yeah. I always wondered what it would be like to have a party on a spaceship. And then Gordon goes like, oh, I love throwing parties because I don't have to go anywhere and I can drink. And I'm like, they're literally just walking back to their right. rooms. <laughs> so <laughs> it no doesn't one's, have like, to drinking. drive anywhere. Yeah. yeah. No one's drinking in spaceship flying anywhere. But I love seeing the everyday things. That's yeah. not just bridge related. So I enjoyed seeing the party. I did, too. And as soon as I heard the song at the beginning, I got so excited. <laughs> I've told Rob this already. And I know like you tweeted something and I replied to it. But as soon as the song started, I looked at Mark and I was like, Rob is going to be so stoked for this episode. <laughs> Just right out the gate. And I guess we'll see what Rob thinks about this episode yeah. as we go through it. But I have a feeling Rob may be stoked about this episode. <laughs> Just in case this is somebody's first episode of listening to the podcast. My favorite episode today is Lasting Impressions. So... This being a follow-up, obviously very excited for. Another thing we should talk about with this scene, and it's something we used to talk about a lot, but we haven't really had a lot of opportunities lately, future fashion. It was better. It's really good. Yes. I was like, it's an elevated version of what we have now. Yeah. It wasn't too like boxy or there wasn't weird zippers anywhere. Like it was understated, but clearly different. Yeah. I noticed like lots of squares and stripes. A lot of them had various shades of the same color. Like Gordon's shirt was divided into different sections, but they were all slightly off-tone versions of the same color. And then a lot of the women's clothing had like mesh cutout areas of them. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was interesting too. Because Mary Chisholm is the new costume designer for this season. And mm -hmm. I've been really enjoying the changes. I mean, I loved everything before and I love talking about future fashion, but everything just seems like it fits into the universe and you don't notice it in the same way. Mm -hmm. It blends in with everything. So you don't sit there and you're like, oh, that looks like there's a weird shoulder pad or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I thought that the costume choices, too, were very indicative of the characters that were wearing stuff. Like everyone's clothing felt like it fit their personality really well. Yeah. And it's such a contrast to when we jump to Ed Kelly, Charlie, and Isaac going back. You can see a difference. Oh, sure. In what they're wearing versus what they're wearing at the party. Absolutely. In the science lab, Lamar is very excited to share the progress he and Isaac have made with the Aronov device. They're able to travel to points in time much more accurately, and theoretically, they can generate a field that would encompass the entire ship. 
Realizing how important the device has become, they contact Admiral Perry, who tells them that a convoy will be sent to escort them and the device to a maximum security research station for safekeeping. One thing, I hope they're not doing anything important in that lab in three months when that sandwich comes back. (laughs) Because what if like in the middle of a crisis and Uh, all of a sudden an egg salad sandwich just appears in the lab? I have to say, too, I loved how fluid the scene was. And Gordon's like, I'm hungry. So he goes over to get a sandwich. And I'm like, an egg salad sandwich, which I feel like (laughs) when you think about office etiquette, you're not supposed to have egg salad sandwiches. You're not supposed to have tuna salad sandwiches. It's like stinky foods. Good point. I also, I don't like eggs, but who's ever craving an egg salad sandwich? That was my thought. You have the option of the entire spectrum of food and egg salad sandwich is what you go to. But hey, everyone's got their comfort foods or whatever it might be. Yeah, I just don't. Oh, nothing's ever appealed to me about mayonnaise eggs on bread. So no, same. The sequence, too, I thought was a good refresher course for how time travel works within the Orville franchise, because every franchise does tackle it in different ways. So it was just a quick little run through again for people that haven't bumped into it. I agree. Also, I love that the Aeronob device is still there. Yeah. just It's a callback. That's from the pilot. Yeah. Pilot relic moment here. Yeah. Pretty sure by the end, it's pretty roasted, but I think they can fix it. So I don't know that it's necessarily going away. I was wondering about that. Yeah. Probably good that it's roasted, though. (laughs) Yeah. I just love getting to see those things again. Mm. Like those through lines that come with each episode. It's like little surprises and things that you just like. It's not throwaway stuff. It's still very much a part of the universe. Also, that's scary that it could become that powerful and be used in such a dangerous way, which I think is what they talk about in the next scene. Yeah. But that could have some really bad implications if it got into the wrong hands. For sure. Yeah. Which is why they wanted to send it to the station. Yeah. And as they're approaching the station, Admiral Ozawa hails them from the USS California to inform them that the station is not responding to hails. Once it's in visual range, they're shocked to find it in pieces with no life signs detected. A group of Kalon ships then drop out of Quantum and head toward the convoy. The Kalon are like the Borg to me, so I get so excited when they show up. Oh, I know. <laughs> They're just doing some damage, though. Like, these fight sequences, like the special effects, obviously, I know we've like talked about it to no mm-hmm. end, just looks so good. But man, before I get ahead of myself, I thought it was interesting that the ship was called the USS California. Yeah. Because I was like, oh, it could be anything, but it's the California. Yeah, that's it's a all. big one, too. It's a <laughs> Leviathan-class ship. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, too, is like, I love seeing the different variations in the ships, but it's always when they blow up. Yeah. Head cannon. <laughs> okay. Since the Leviathans are generally admiral ships, perhaps Ozawa is from California and therefore named her own ship that. Ooh, I kind of like the idea. It's like you become an admiral, you get to name your ship. Yeah. That'd be pretty exciting. It's like a reward for getting to be admiral status. Exactly. Yeah. It is really sad, though, because they can't hail the ship. I'm like, okay, nothing good is going to come out of this or the station. And they get there. It's just completely destroyed. Yeah. And I understand the need to protect the device with the convoy. But I also had a thought that that kind of puts a target right on their back. It's almost like signaling to the enemy. We have something really important to protect. Come get us. Because I can't think of another reason that the Kalon would have known that the Orville had the Aronov device and were transporting it to the station. That's a good point. Either there's a rat in the ranks, like not even just on the Orville, but anybody in that convoy. 
Or somehow they're monitoring Isaac still. That's a speculation I saw online a bunch. Ooh, I didn't even think about that because they specifically say to the Orville, they don't destroy the Orville because they want this device. Mm-hmm. Oh, that actually, I didn't even think about that in the moment. How did they know? It's a good question. Oh, because that's the thing about this show. Everything usually has a purpose. Usually, yes. So that seems like a pretty big thing that probably has a purpose somewhere. I have a feeling this is a breadcrumb on a larger trail. I wonder if there's been a bunch of breadcrumbs this episode. It's possible. I think they're building to something big. Yeah, I think that tends to happen. (laughs) (laughs) Combat begins between the two groups of ships. Suffering heavy losses, Azawa orders a full retreat to the Vale Nebula. But one of the Kalon ships locks a tractor beam onto the Orville. Mercer orders Tala to go destroy the device, but an explosion takes her down. Gordon volunteers to take her place and runs to the science lab. As the Kalon are attempting to lock docking clamps, Isaac suggests overloading the deflector array to disrupt the tractor beam. Lamar powers up the quantum core and it generates a wave that not only releases the beam, but also passes through the device and strikes Gordon before he's able to destroy it. When they said they were heading towards a nebula... Yeah. I just assume that that would be the catalyst for the time travel because nebulas are just infamous for being big plot devices and getting done whatever they need to get done. Not this time, though. <laughs> no, not this time. No, it just looked gorgeous. And that's all. It oh, did. it was so pretty when they got oh. to that. I was like, oh, that's what I want. But I do have to point out when the Aronov device went off and Gordon got thrown back. Did you see the multiple iterations of Gordon? Yeah, he like split. That was a yeah. super cool look. I really liked that because I was like, oh, it, it added a layer of like, wait, where are they going with this? Are we going to? It makes me think there's other Gordons in other places. Maybe on second watch, I noticed the effect more because it happens super fast. Mm -hmm. And I just assumed it was like, these are all the potential timelines that just branched out. That's what I was thinking. And we only really knew about the 2015 one because that was the only one he sent a message back from. Exactly. Oh, so that is where my brain went when I saw that. Did you think it was odd that Tala got hurt from that explosion? Well, yeah, I mean, it's an explosion. It took her down and it was I don't think normally it would have been that big of a deal, but Mm -hmm. it it knocked her off her feet and it just stopped her long enough for someone else to get up and do it. Yeah, because I'm like, oh, she's a Zelayan. Like, I'm just used to them being super tough. And I guess it just seemed disproportionate. She's strong, but she's not explosion proof. I guess nobody's explosion proof. No, but on that note, I am glad that they answered the question that I would have asked before I asked it. Because if Gordon went right there and said, oh, I'll do it, or if Ed ordered Gordon to do it, I would have been like, but Tala's right there. Yeah. Why wouldn't they have her do it? So they kind of had to do that just to make Gordon do it instead. Yeah. I knew something was going to happen with the device when they cut to him running down the hallway. I was like, "Uh uh-oh, this is more than just a one-two laser beam. So yeah, yeah, definitely that whole sequence, the Kalon attack was just so intense. Every time the Kalon and the Union battle. It's just an epic thing to see. And there is a lot of heavy casualties. There's a lot of damage that gets done. You just see ships blown up left and right and a lot of destruction. I have to say, like, even I forgot to mention at the beginning of this episode, they pan over the Orville and they Mm -hmm. had all the light reflecting off of his also shiny. And I just, you know, (laughs) I always, I know we always talk about the special effects, but it just, it looks really good. And 
I haven't had anything jarring like pull me out because I'm like, oh, that looked fake or anything like that. So again, just like the people behind the scenes killing it. Yeah. And when the Kalon show up, I don't know if, if you're like this, but do you have like a favorite enemy in sci-fi? Like you're so excited when they show up. Nothing that specifically comes to mind. No, but I know what you mean. Like I yeah. definitely prefer some to others. I guess it doesn't have to just be sci-fi. It could be like from the Marvel universe or something oh, yeah. like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. You're like, oh, cool. I don't watch Marvel movies. <laughs> Mr. Badhead is here. Like, I don't know. <laughs> That's Ooh a boy. really <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Badhead's not a, a big Marvel villain. Yes, he sure is, Katie. Good job. Yeah. Mr. Badhead. So when the Kalon show up, it reminds me of like when the Borg would show up in Next Gen and mm -hmm. I would just be like, yes, because it's just exciting. And we've only gotten little bits of Kalon this season. We haven't had True. a lot. Not that I'm excited they're showing up and doing work on the Union, but I'm just excited to see them. And I want to know what happens because the Union is very much at war with the Kalon yeah. right now. Once they reach the nebula, it appears as though the Kalon have given up their pursuit. Back in the lab, the crew are investigating Gordon's disappearance. Lamar reports that the Aronov device seems to be running at full power, even though it hasn't been activated in days. Bordis then calls from the bridge to report that they're receiving a hail from Gordon. However, the message is originating from Earth, but 400 years ago. They play it and learn that Gordon is trapped in the year 2015, and he's asking for help. That just stressed me out a little bit, being trapped in the past. Yeah. He somehow found a way to get a message to them, though, and it worked. Yeah. One of my thoughts was Gordon is way more ingenuitive than I would have thought in this situation, because that could not have been an easy task to accomplish. I agree with you. Like, I don't think he's given a lot of credit for how intelligent he actually is. And mm -hmm. I think that he's probably because I know later in the episode, he survived like three years. Yeah. In like a cabin in the middle of nowhere. So... In those situations, maybe just all those things you normally don't have to deal with or your survival instincts just kick in. But I feel like someone of his standing in the union probably is pretty intelligent to get to where he is. But going back to 2015 is such a stretch from 400 years in the future. Yeah. So like you have to adapt to that. That would just be a lot of shell shock. And then to not be around people like there's a lot of thoughts I have with like Gordon's choice later on. Same. Yeah. So I definitely am impressed that he was able to get a message to them that far in the future. And to pinpoint it that well. I know. I don't know how he would have done that. I kind of want to know more about how he did it. But, you know, that's a little thing. Yeah. There's a lot of me that goes, oh, how do you do this? And it seems unlikely that he maybe did that. But then I'm like, you know what? really not that important and uh it just gets the episode moving forward and i'm mm -hmm. fine with that i even think about like they just searched record banks and he had an audio recording somewhere because you think about it it would be in the past so they searched certain keywords could have been that too yeah so yeah this episode was kind of a roller coaster oh yeah it was all over the place yeah it was all i didn't know how it was gonna end to be honest same in the briefing room john shares gordon's obituary which says that he lived out his life on earth as a pilot and flight engineer to explain what happened, he and Isaac suggest that the human mind is a factor when time traveling with the device, similar to when past Kelly appeared. Since Gordon was recently thinking about Laura at the party, his subconscious set her time period as a destination. Charlie suggests that since he died already, they must not have been able to save him. But John and Isaac say that time is in flux based on what they do next. One of the things that I really liked about this part is the consistency. And I know that's something we praise a lot 
but the consistency of how the mind factors into how time travel works for them. So because it worked that way with Kelly coming from the past into the present, it works the same way with Gordon. He was thinking about Laura. So subconsciously, boom, that's where you go. Yeah. Which honestly is probably a better thing than if he had been watching a movie about dinosaurs or something. Oh, man. (laughs) Oh, which I think is also telling of where Gordon's head is at. I think it's kind of obvious. He never really got over Laura. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's still holding on to the cell phone. So, yeah. I wonder if that makes it hard for him to move on and like have someone now, if you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. that kind of like, oh, the cell phone's there. So he sees it every day and is reminded of her. Maybe it could be a little bit, but we've never really explored that too much with him. So we don't know what's happened off screen, really. I feel like the time travel is pretty telling that he went back to the time that she was from. True. But they said it's also based on proximity of thought. So like Mm. at the party the night before, that was very clearly on his mind. So it's just really a new, fresh thought. Yeah, I guess I always think like my brain moves a million miles a minute. I have anxiety. So my brain's just like all the time. So like something I thought about last night Mm -hmm. would not be the closest thought I had to like today. So maybe Gordon doesn't have anxiety. (laughs) That was the, the most important thought he had. So yeah, I guess it's just interesting to think about like, well, he was just in the battle with the Kalon. Why didn't he think about the last time they were in the battle with the Kalon? Like things like that. But again, we saw that fracture happen. So who knows? While it puts a strain on the core, they give it a shot and manage to use the device to take the entire ship back. However, Lamar reports that they ran out of Dysonium before they reached their target. Instead of reaching 2015, they arrived in 2025, meaning that Gordon's been in the past for 10 years. They'll need more Dysonium to not only try again, but to get back home. Isaac suggests extracting some of the untouched Dysonium that's still in this Earth's mantle, but he'll need Ensign Burke's skills to do it successfully. It's scary to think about not having the materials you need to go back where you want to or also get back home. Yeah. That's so scary. So it's lucky that the Earth still got some in it. I just immediately thought when they said, oh, he's been on Earth for 10 years. I was like, that's a long time to just think, oh, got to extract him. Because I, you know, my brain was already like, he found Laura. There's all this stuff. Like, I already went there. Same. That was a hard thing when they're like, oh, we're going to just go go get him. And yeah, there's some things I think about that. But I don't know. I feel like 10 years is too long to feel like it's going to be a quick pickup, head home kind of deal. I had the thought here, too. They're so worried about disrupting the timeline and influencing anything in the past. But taking any Dysonium from the Earth seems like it's a potential issue. Which I think is why John brought up the fault line thing. Like you do it just the wrong way. It'll cause an earthquake. Right. But I do also feel like it's adjusting the earth. Like you're taking from the earth this resource that was full. And now it's, I think probably took a lot. Like you think about it's a spaceship. Like how much Dysonium did they need? Who's to say that's not the deposit that they initially discover, which allows them Mm -hmm. to use quantum drive and... Timey-wimey stuff is just so sketchy, and I just don't think messing with any of it, but they needed it to get back. Yeah. So what are you going to do? Just live in 2015 in your spaceship? <laughs> According to temporal law. Yeah, I guess it was. this would have been 2025. So yeah, it stresses me out to think about being in those situations, like when anyone ever time travels in any show, 
which is why I don't think I love time travel shows because they stress me out a lot. <laughs> but yeah, I I can take them in small doses when it's like an episode. But I also thought that taking Dysonium is still messing with the Earth as it is. Yeah. As the away team prepares to leave the Orville, Isaac activates the Calavon device to appear human. When they touch down on the surface, Ed orders them to avoid any unnecessary footprints and they split into two teams. Mercer and Grayson are going to look for Gordon, while Isaac and Burke head to the location to deploy the probe. So one of the things I notice here, and I've been noticing it every episode, they are straight up taunting me with that Pterodon ship. It is in the <laughs> shuttle bay, and it's been there every episode. They've only used it in the first episode of season three, and I am dying to see it in action again. And we're just watching it every episode, and it's not getting used. I think that's on purpose. There's got to be some sort of epic fight. There's got to be some sort of Kalon thing. They're going to take it out, and it's going to do some damage in some way. I don't know how much longer I can wait. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe soon. Like, Identity Part 1 and 2, that wasn't even end of the season. So Yeah, I know. Maybe it's next episode that you'll see the pterodon. <laughs> I've loved the writing in this episode specifically. Mm -hmm. There's just a lot of funny moments. And Ed saying like, I don't know about using that Califine device. It screwed us over when we did that yeah. whole krill thing. I just thought that was funny. But I love when Isaac is in human form. I had a feeling you'd enjoy that. Yeah, I loved it so much and getting to see Mark Jackson, but also like he still has the mannerisms and the way his eyes move and just how he speaks. It's done so well. Yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah. And I love that they get to show him off outside of the costume, too. Just for the actor's sake, I think it's really cool to see the person underneath. It's not an outfit, right, <laughs> the, right. the, the costume. So I was excited that they still have the Calavon device, but I also love that they commented on it's not really reliable. So yeah. I was worried that was going to come up, yeah, but it didn't. So I will say this is also when Isaac is trying to get Charlie to talk to him and he's asking the questions like, do you play any sports? <laughs> and I loved there was a shot of Ed and Kelly yeah. and just the look <laughs> that Ed had, I was laughing so much because it was just kind of like, oh, what the, what? <laughs> I love this whole little away team scene. Yeah, It's just I a small too. bit of the episode, but I really loved it. Yeah. Gordon exits a plane and goes into the hangar. When he turns around, he's shocked to see Ed and Kelly walking toward him. They apologize for arriving so late, and he remains in disbelief. When they tell him they're going to take him home, he asks if they can go for a ride. He talks about how well he's been fitting into this time period, but Ed wants to lecture him about violating temporal law. As they pull into a driveway, Gordon tells them that he's not going back. They go inside where Gordon reveals his pregnant wife, Laura, and their son, Edward. I was shocked that they weren't hugging. Oh, yeah, when they show up? Yeah. I had that thought, too. I thought they would. Mm -hmm. And then I also had the thought of, in the back of Gordon's mind, he knows what this means and he's probably happy to see them, but also at the same time, not so happy to see them. Yeah, I just thought, you know, like they're good friends. It's like seeing someone you haven't seen and they're safe and alive. And perhaps that's just me. I do understand, though, the whole dynamic of, oh, they're going to take me away from my happiness and what I've wanted. Right. So I get it. It was just I knew they were building to something. I was like, he's obviously got a wife and a family now and he's got a career. Mm -hmm. He's driving the car that says Oville on it. <laughs> I did like the Oville thing because he couldn't get Orville. <laughs> and it's just like very normal life stuff. It's not glamorous. It's not a spaceship, but he's happy. Yeah. 
So this was just leading up to heartbreak from the get-go. What did you think when there's the big reveal? Oh, here's Laura. Saw it coming, but was very happy. Because especially, too, like you said, in that obituary, mm-hmm. I'm sure most people don't pause and actually read it. But if yeah. you did, you would have known he was married to Laura before she ever shows up on screen. Yeah, I didn't pause it till after the episode just purely because I didn't want a spoiler if there was one. So I'm glad I didn't. Yeah. But yeah, if you just paused it, you would have been like, oh, they got married and had a kid. And so, yeah, he's got a family. He's got a nice house. He's got a good job. He's a pilot still. It's everything he wanted. It's like one of those things that's not a surprise. And yet when it happens, you're still like, oh, yay. Yeah. It's like, (laughs) yay for Gordon. But then also, what does this mean? So, yeah. Isaac and Charlie locate the best drill site, but it's far enough away that transportation would be helpful. Burke spots a biker bar and the two go inside. Charlie approaches a couple men at the bar and bets them their bikes that her brother, Isaac, can beat the strongest guy there in an arm wrestling match. After she tells Isaac to make it believable, he wins the match with minimal effort and the two ride off. Okay, so even though she doesn't like him. Yeah. I love the interactions between Charlie and Isaac throughout this entire episode. Oh, same. They're so good. They're so funny. And there's something extra funny about Isaac's dry delivery when he's in his human form. Oh, his face. His face doesn't change. Yeah. He keeps a straight face. And I think that's what sells it. He's saying Isaac things, but he's a human who's just very dry and non-emotive. I loved when he's doing the arm wrestling and the guy's almost like winning. Mm -hmm. And then he like looks at Charlie and Charlie kind of like nods her head. And she's like, oh, no, I'm losing. (laughs) I have that same line written down because that was like the highlight of the scene. Him just saying that. And then just immediately slams the guy's hand down on the other side and they take the bikes. But I'm also, dude, it was so creepy when Charlie was like, hey, I'll bet you the bikes. And the guys are like, what do I get if we win? And she's very confidently like she knows Isaac's going to be able to do this. Yeah. She said something like your choice. And I was like, oh, it just wasn't icky. It made me icky. I didn't like it. I thought it was an interesting acting choice, too, for Ann Winters to do the little batting of the eyes after, too. (laughs) Like, here's the last thing I'm going to do to suck these guys in. I know, which honestly, good on her. She's very persuasive. And Isaac is obviously a robot who can be stronger than most people. So this whole sequence was a fun one. Out of all of it. And you get to see Isaac and Charlie working together, even though like you can tell Charlie doesn't want to be around him. Yeah. And they still work well together. They do. Yeah. Back at Gordon's, Laura is telling Ed and Kelly about how the two of them met. Meanwhile, on the Orville, Lamar is working on repairs when a tweaked muscle starts bothering him. Tal offers to (laughs) massage it. And John is very impressed with how well she's able to fix it. So impressed, in fact, that the two immediately start making out. I remembered this happened. And then just when you were reading it, I remembered the scene. And so I started laughing because (laughs) John says a line at some point, like, what the Fortis or something, which I know you're going to have to bleep out now. (laughs) But it was so funny. But the making out was just like, ding, they went for it. Yeah, I didn't necessarily see that part coming. But I did think that the scene with Tala and John, like leading up to that, was one of the funniest moments in this episode. His reactions paired with that cutaway scene to the look of the rest of the engineering crew. (laughs) I was rolling. That was so well done. 
It was really funny. And I didn't expect them to make out so soon. Yeah. But there's like some tension between those two. Oh, yeah. I thought it was going to come up again. It never came up again. No, not in this episode. I did find that a little odd that they went that hot and heavy in the scene and then no mention of it for the rest of anything. They're going to try to hide it. I think that's my prediction. Is this going to be like a... They're not doing a good job already no. then. <laughs> <laughs> we were sitting there watching this and Mark's like, they're just making like all those sounds and now yeah. they're just making out in engineering. So yeah, they're not doing a good job hiding it, but I do wonder if they're going to try to fly underneath the radar with this new little romance that's happening. Maybe. I don't think it's going to work. I think... They're going to try and hide it and everyone's going to know anyway. And that's yeah. going to be the bit. Maybe. Yeah, I'm happy for them. John and Tala deserve love. So yeah. I'm hoping it'll work out. At lunch, too, I thought it was interesting how selective their knowledge of past pop culture is. Yeah. Because we've seen them know about things like Seinfeld and Star Wars. But then you bring up the Red Sox and they're completely clueless. Maybe they're just not big sports fans. It's possible. Yeah, I did love that back and forth, though. Like, socks are important. Socks yeah. are good. Like <laughs> neat socks. Maybe just Boston sports knowledge was not part of the entertainment curriculum they I don't know. Boston is a rabid sports town as someone it that lives is. in Massachusetts. Well, I'm from <laughs> New York and like Yankees versus Red Sox yeah. was like oof. I mean, I would have been able to answer those questions, but maybe in the future sports sports is a thing though, because Isaac asked about sports. Maybe That's baseball. True. Maybe it's future baseball. Or the teams are just so wildly different named that that's like ancient history. It's I don't know. It's a strange. I know they do it for the bit and that's fine. I know. I'm just trying to think of a future sports team nickname. Like if the Boston Red Sox had a new iteration 400 years in the future, what would they be called? The Boston Toeless Foot Apparel. I don't know. (laughs) Toeless Foot Apparel? The Boston Flip Flops. Yeah, there you go. After lunch, Gordon, Ed, and Kelly go into a separate room of the house. Ed and Kelly resume their lecture about temporal law, but Gordon doesn't want to hear it. He argues that he did his duty for three years, but he couldn't take the isolation anymore. After three years alone, he went looking for Laura, found her, and made a life for himself. The two parties both argue their cases for whether or not Gordon is negatively affecting the timeline. Eventually, he asks them to leave. So I know you love Laura. And getting into that stuff. I found this was an interesting lore tidbit when we learned that killing animals is illegal in the future. I love that. Just because I'm a vegetarian. A lot of people eat meat. And I mean, some people have dietary restrictions and stuff. I don't eat meat. But I thought that was also very interesting that technically in the future, you kill an animal, it's considered murder. Mm -hmm. But it makes sense. They have synthesizers that can fulfill their food needs at any time. Why would they need to kill animals? Yeah. It reminds me of trophy hunting nowadays where people just hunt for the sport of it and they rhinos and things like that. That stuff is upsetting. And I did forget to mention in the car on the drive over the little lines about how our society has left quite a mess for them to clean up. And even like the digs at Gordon, like, wow, you fit in pretty well here with like Gordon almost defending himself, but it could be construed as like selfish thinking. Mm hmm. And so I just thought those little digs were interesting and very, like, very minimal. But I was like, I I can see that. Like, I get it. It's just like points out that our environment is awful and how we do things is bad. Yeah. And, And you can look at Gordon's arguments as selfish here, like they claim them to be. But you can also take his side in the argument, too. I thought one of the most interesting things about their debate and their argument 
is that they're both kind of right. I know. Even though Gordon violated temporal law, he makes a very good point of humans are social creatures. And what do you want me to just like stay in this cabin, go crazy or like kill myself or like, what do you want me to do? Like, I just want to live the rest of my life. I couldn't. Well, I don't know. Like sometimes I'd be like, would the guilt alone make me stay holed up in a cabin? Mm -hmm. But there is a point where you're like, they're not coming. And I'm not going to die tomorrow unless something happens. But it's yeah. just like one of those things where I can see it from both sides. I also kind of lean heavily more towards Gordon's choice of going and actually living a life. Like how unfulfilling of a life would it be just to be in a cabin and hope somebody shows up? In this situation, I can definitely understand Gordon's point of view. And I also look at where they're each coming from, because for Ed and Kelly, it's been like a day. For Gordon, it's been 10 years. That perspective shift is huge. Yeah. There is a lot to say versus someone who's had to sit with something for a long time versus someone who's just been like, yeah, we just didn't quite get the time right. So now we're going to come get you. Right. A lot happens in like a week. A lot can happen in a month. A lot can happen in 10 years, especially everything compounds. He tried for three years to do the quote unquote right thing. Mm -hmm. But there is a point where it's like, what are you supposed to do? Just spend 50 years hoping someone shows up and just avoiding the rest of society. Yeah, I don't I don't think I could do it either. I get it. I feel like Ed and Kelly are really harsh on him, but he did kind of mess with the timeline <laughs> a lot. Yeah, like I said, it's both sides of the argument. They're both valid. So it's really hard to side with one or the other. It's a tough one to have a right answer to, I think. Yeah, I don't think there is a right answer. I think that's the tough part. Mm hmm. Since Laura overheard at least some of the argument, Gordon decides to tell her everything. She admits that, in a way, she's always known that there's something about him that's different. When she asks what happens next, Gordon says that they want to take him back, but he wants to stay with her. She was very understanding about the whole situation. Yeah. She brought up the pandemic and saying, like, you just seemed like you knew. Sometimes people do have those, like, sixth sense about things. Mm -hmm. But he knows history. Yeah, he knows. Like, <laughs> yeah. so it's like, but I'm saying, like, she had From a sixth sense. From her perspective, sure, sure. But when you're with somebody for that long, I'm sure that you are more apt to be understanding of things like that. Mark and I were discussing, like, if Mark was like, hey, so I'm from the future and I made a simulation <laughs> about you and hung out in your cell phone simulation for a long time. And then, like, I time traveled. And now, like, you have to think about it in those terms, too. Well, I think one of the interesting things that she said is that maybe it took this long for them to be together for her to get to a point where this was an acceptable truth. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Whereas traditionally in a lot of these stories, you tell someone something like that and it's like, you've been lying to me this whole time. And there's like this crazy overreaction. Yeah. But I thought she had a very realistic reaction and one that was giving him the benefit of the doubt, which I think is the most important part of it, is that she wasn't just immediately repulsed by this information. She was, but I'm married to you and I know you and I love you and therefore... I'm going to want to take your side in this and see it from your perspective. Yeah, I think because media in general makes that everyone gets upset. You lied to me in the smallest degree and then it's a huge blow up and it's right. usually a big plot point. And I think in real life, though, there's a lot of stuff that I realized as I've gotten older where it's like, oh, sometimes you're not ready to deal with something or 
just thinking in terms of like therapy or something like that. So then you get to a point where you're like, oh, I'm ready to deal with something or I'm mm-hmm. ready to deal with this. And so this seems like almost similar in the sense where it's like the time was right for it. Yeah. And they were both at a place where the stars aligned, for lack of a better word, to yeah. just have this conversation and have it not be one of those like, I can't believe you did this ah, kind of thing. But it does help ease some of the thoughts I have about it because she is so understanding about it. And, you know, he literally says to her, I want to be with you. So he does not want to go back to the Orville. Right. So this is where in the episode, I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. They can't leave Gordon. This is what I've been doing this whole season. Oh, no, is Gordon leaving the show? (laughs) So then like every episode, there's been a moment where I'm like, oh, no, is this actor leaving? And uh, maybe Alara has just lingered. And I'm just always prepared for someone to leave. And these are just like the routes they're taking to let us down easy. Because then Gordon would have gotten his happy ending. True. And he didn't get his happy ending. From this scene, I had a question for you. Uh Uh-oh. Where Laura is accepting of everything that Gordon did, especially the events of Lasting Impressions. And I know your thoughts in Lasting Impressions that there was this kind of weird creepiness to it. Uh But knowing now that she has no problem with that whatsoever, does that retroactively affect your opinion of Lasting Impressions? I do think it helped because he was forthright with her. I'm assuming told her everything. Oh, yeah. And there is some stuff in my takeaway that I think will explain more of why I feel the way I do about it. Okay. But up until the point that she said this in this specific episode, I thought it was creepy. Yeah. Because Gordon had this whole experience, quote unquote, with her in the simulation. He searched her out the whole meeting story. Like, oh, we met and, you know, he came in and he bought me a drink and all that stuff. And I'm just like, oh, like for a girl such as myself, it was just red flag city. That's such a creepy thing to think about. (laughs) So her going through and being like, I get it. It's romantic. It's supposed to be that whole like forbidden love story that should have never happened, but it did end up happening. Mm -hmm. And it's supposed to be that whole romanticized ideal of like, oh, we were always meant to be together. Mm -hmm. So I think her and Gordon having that conversation was important because I do think there are some like issues with the way that he found her and things like that. There could be. And I know we had this conversation before when we talked about that episode, but I think intentionality has a big part to do with it. And I think his intentions have always been more chivalrous than creepy. Oh, yeah. I think like and I talk more about this in my takeaway. It's not that I have a problem with them. Mm. It's more of like my own experiences and then how that kind of feels as a woman. That's totally fair. So, yeah. It's just always being on guard. I always have to be on guard. And these are scenarios where sometimes it's like it is romantic, but Mm -hmm. also I don't want some young girl to see that and go like, oh, that's so romantic. And then like get a bad (laughs) idea about it and it not be a Gordon. It being a someone very different than a Gordon. For sure. Yeah. Charlie and Isaac arrive at the drilling coordinates, which are within a house that's for sale. As they're looking at it, the real estate agent approaches and Charlie plays along with the idea of them being a couple. They ask to think about the purchase alone in the basement, and once the agent leaves, they set up the probe. After breaching the mantle, the two wait for the disonium extraction. While waiting, Isaac thanks Charlie for saving his life. She tells him that she was just doing her duty and reveals to him that Amanda was more than her best friend. She loved her, and now she'll never have the chance to tell her. Is this something you brought up? Because I think I remember 
hearing something it. about you did okay because I, I was this. like wait a minute this feels familiar i feel like i've heard this theory before my heart breaks for charlie but i was so excited that no i guess i'm not excited for her she lost amanda yeah. but that she felt comfortable sharing that side of herself with isaac and maybe giving him more perspective on why she's so upset yeah i don't even know if it was comfort or if it was, here's more ammunition. I couldn't really tell. I'm still yeah. figuring out their relationship. And by the end of this episode, even, I'm not sure that Charlie has softened to him at all. But one of the questions I did have as we were going through it, and mm -hmm. it's one of the things that made me think that maybe she was opening up a little bit in this moment to him where normally she wouldn't. I do wonder if it's harder for Charlie to stay as mad at Isaac as she is while he's in human form. As soon as he used the projector early in the episode, I thought that might be leading to her looking at him differently because of this new thing. So like his face just being metallic and blank, mm -hmm. it's very easy to be aggressive toward that. But when you're looking at another person that has eyes and a nose and a mouth and expressions, even though he's still pretty <laughs> blank with a lot of those expressions, yeah. it's more difficult. They made almost a point of her noticing when he changed into human form on the shuttle. So I think that it humanized Isaac to her. I think that there were steps in a positive direction for them. I mm -hmm. think she did soften to him. I think she's conflicted about it. And I feel like that's what I got from it is she's not sure that it's okay for her to be okay with Isaac. She wants to hold on to her anger for Amanda's sake. Yeah. Which is heartbreaking for Charlie. Like she's in love with her best friend and she never got the chance to tell her. And then Amanda sacrificed herself so Charlie could live. Yeah. And Isaac took that away from her. So I also wanted to point out Isaac saying thank you for reactivating me was, yes, robotic. And he was snarky throughout it, but she had a hard time taking that thank you. But I thought that was a big thing for Isaac to do because mm -hmm. he seemingly has been searching her out to tell her that. And he could just go up to her and say, thank you for doing this. But it seems like he's trying to get a rapport with her to say it, not just come out and say it. Yeah, like do it in the right way. Yeah. There's the part where Isaac says it again. And he says, nevertheless, I thank you. Mm -hmm. And I thought he was going to add, and I'm sorry. Yeah, I think that might be a stretch <laughs> for Isaac, but maybe. Yeah. But I think it would have been an interesting thing for him to recognize because if he's looking at customs, mm -hmm. he might have also recognized the human custom of I have hurt you. And when you hurt somebody, you apologize. I do wonder if they're leading to that. I felt like we're getting closer to the Isaac Charlie picnic that I'm hoping for. <laughs> I will say that real estate agent left them downstairs for so long, it felt like, to discuss things. Hey, they want to make a sale. <laughs> I feel like when I, when I was going real estate shopping, they were on top of oh, you. Yeah. It didn't leave you alone. Plus, it's like they made a hole in the ground. They had whole equipment down there. It was just a lot they going on. They had to on. for the plot. It's, it's fine. I know. I know but you mean, though. it was just a long time in the basement. I was curious if they were going to repair the hole for the Dysonium they did. extract. They did. I thought they might just like walk out with this giant hole in the ground. But that, I think, would have made bigger issues with the temporal law. Mm -hmm. But what are you going to do? I guess you have future tech. You can fix the floor, apparently. Yeah. And cool looking device. Almost looked like a shotgun. Yeah, it did. I'm also like, where was that? Was that in the backpack? Must have been. Just, yeah. 
I enjoyed this scene though. I'm sad for Charlie, but in a way, I do think she opened up a little bit more to Isaac mm. with sharing that. Yes, it was a little ammunition-y, but it was also a little more heartfelt and maybe him being in his human form allowed for that to happen. Maybe, because yeah, she never shared that detail with him. No. She's been mad, but she never really explained why. Yeah, and it also gives more perspective into why Charlie's so upset. Oh, yeah. That's heartbreaking. And then Isaac saying thank you was, there's got to be more. There's got to be more to Isaac. (laughs) The way he went about it. He did seem to have this pressing need to make sure that he thanked her. Yeah, and I don't believe Isaac season one would have done that. I agree. I've been really loving Isaac this season, and I have enjoyed this specific episode because I liked having just Charlie and Isaac isolated. These two who butt heads all the time, or she butts heads with him, and forced in this scenario, they had to work together, and they worked together well. And then there was some like touching moments between the two of them. So waiting for that picnic. As the Malloy family is watching TV at night, the doorbell rings. Gordon goes to answer, and Ed and Kelly are back, but this time with Tala. When he sees Tala, he gets angry and says again that he's not leaving. As she approaches, he pulls out his blaster and threatens to stun them and disappear to where they'll never find him or his family. Before Gordon can act, Isaac contacts Mercer to tell him that the Dysonium they need has been secured. Ed then tells Gordon that he's coming home, but he's coming home from 2015. They'll go back and get the version of him that was immediately asking for help, meaning this version of him will never exist. As they leave, Gordon begs Ed not to take away his family. When they're gone, Gordon tells his family that they're stronger than time. Man, this whole scene. This was rough. The way they rolled up to his house. There's like a lack of understanding and you can't really do this with kid gloves. No, and I think... My biggest thing in this scene, obviously, we've been talking about this as different people have been getting highlighted in different episodes, but this is another scene where the performances are off the charts good. Gordon is more emotional here than we've ever seen him. So hats off to Scott Grimes for his performance, not only here, but the entire episode. But Ed, Kelly and Tala are noticeably cold, like you said, the way they kind of roll up in here. And honestly, they would have to be. They're likely being hurt by having to follow through with this and being as cold as they're being is the only way that they're able to manage it and get this done. I don't even like know how you're supposed to feel about this specific scene. Your heart breaks for Gordon, but you also go like they have to bring him back. But then you're also like his family's right there. And then they were doing all of this in front of Edward and Laura and Gordon gets his blaster out. But he's doing all that in front of Edward. And I was like, that's going to mess up that kid. Give him some PTSD to deal with. Well, I'm thinking at this point, even if Gordon agrees to leave, damage is done. Yeah. He's been there for 10 years. They have to go back to 2015. I don't even know how you resolve this. Ed and Kelly are trying to minimize the amount of damage on the timeline. Mm -hmm. Because the thing is like, yes, it's been 10 years, but 10 years is better than 60 years of messing and contaminating Mm -hmm. the timeline. Gordon is finally seemingly happy and enjoying his life and okay with like having a Toyota Camry and watching a sitcom with his family. And I think that shows a lot about what Gordon wants out of life. Mm -hmm. And they're just being like, you have a duty to the union and to keeping the time. Like it just, it's, it's such a cold turn from like how I normally view the union where it's like, yeah, they're just doing the good stuff and they're saving the space. And then it's like, oh, 
it shows the darker side of these things, which I think we normally don't think about. Mm -hmm. They're both kind of right. That's the interesting push and pull of the episode is that you want to side with both of them at different times. And it's really making you think about how you would handle it and what you want them to do and whether you're making your decision based on what the law dictates and what their obligations are versus what you emotionally want to happen. And it's it's hard. And then like getting the option to be like, oh, we're going to get you back. But they end up getting to jump further back to get him. So Mm -hmm. it works out, but they still have that knowledge of what could have been for Gordon. Mm -hmm. And that comes back up later, too. Yeah, I think there's going to be more repercussions in the future about that somehow. Certainly possible. More from like an interpersonal perspective, not really a timeline perspective, but... Gordon telling his family, like, at the end, like, we're stronger than time and all that. It's it's heartbreaking because it's like, you know, that whole little family unit is just disappearing. I do think that was an important line, though, mm-hmm. where he says that they're stronger than time. I think that's foreshadowing for the future. I mean, the episode is entitled Lasting Impressions. This one's called Twice in a Lifetime. I think that there's got to be another follow up to this at some point. I hope so. With everyone back aboard, the Orville sets a course for 2015 and activates the Aronov device. This time, they arrive roughly a month after Gordon originally did and successfully extract him from the planet. In the lab, John reports that the device is now completely shot and will take months to repair. When Ed comments that they can't just fly into the future without it, Lamar says that that's exactly what they'll do. As you kind of hinted to earlier, I do wonder if this is the show's way of taking the Aronov device off the board. It might be one of those things they get back and they're like, yeah, it's not really worth repairing. They have the blueprints. They probably could store the husk of the Aronov device somewhere. But Mm -hmm. yeah, after what just occurred, I'm thinking that time stuff might be good to put in a box on a shelf for a while. One of those things where they're just like, it's too much trouble. With the Kalon? Like, it just seems like a bad idea to have that floating around right now. Absolutely. I think this whole season they've been showing John's intelligence, which I really appreciate. He's a smart cookie and he knows what he's doing and he's just really showing leadership and just taking care of business this whole season. Yeah, John's doing a lot of things here that I would normally expect Isaac to. Yeah. He's really stepping it up with the problem solving and coming up with these solutions and stuff. Although I did think it was funny when he's like the math part. Oh, you have fun with that. He tosses yeah. that off to Isaac. But Isaac might have fun with that. He might. <laughs> I mean, as much fun as Isaac has. Again, the debate. Yes, but he's alive in a lot of ways, Rob. <laughs> so they get Gordon back, but it's only been a month. Mm-hmm. So he hasn't experienced any of those things that they've seen. Correct. Don't you think that's a lot for like Kelly, Ed and Tala to have to carry with them? Oh, yeah. I mean, we'll get to it that they're going to tell him all that stuff. But I was wondering if they would or not. Mm -hmm. Lamar brings them all to engineering and suggests that by traveling at close to light speed, the time dilation from Einstein's theory would allow them to fly forward in time if they simply disable the quantum field that normally protects them from that happening. They chart a course to a star that's about 200 light years away and engage quantum drive. Once they reach the star and verify that 200 years have passed, they turn around and return to Earth, completing their trip back to their own time. All of this was so cool looking. Oh, my God. Yeah, I love how it looks. I was, uh, what were the colors? It was green and red. And then there was... There was blue and red as well. Was it blue and red? Mm-hmm. The first trip was blue and red. And then on the way back, it was green and red. 
I don't remember what I was yelling, but every time the colors changed, I was like, it's Christmas. And then I'd yell something else every time the colors changed. But I really enjoyed their version of what time traveling looked like and that they did two separate jumps. Yeah, I kind of like that. That was cool. And a lot of the space games I play like to travel, they have to jump. Mm -hmm. I mean, this isn't traveling. It's not like time travel, but they have to reach certain points before moving on to the next. So I kind of like like they moved 200 years and then another 200. My thought before they started going, like I didn't know they were going there and back, even though they said it, the line went by so fast that I didn't register it. Mm -hmm. So when they were making the jump, I was like, would you not just go like a little bit first to see if it works before you go the rest of the way in case you overshoot it? Because you can't come back. You can only go forward. So this is one direction that you're going in. So when they do the 200 and I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Go like halfway there, make sure it works, then turn around and do the rest. Mm -hmm. It looked cool. It made sense. And it was different than them just doing the whole jump ball once. Like I kind of like that it broke that up and made it a little more like, oh yeah, everything's not always space is always like linear. There's moving parts to it. Mm -hmm. I want a screensaver of the Orville traveling. Oh my goodness. that, That would be the best. John stepping up and coming up. Oh, we can just do it this way. Mm-hmm. It was really cool to see, like, and see it all come to fruition and be like, hey, John did that. That was one of those decisions that I was like, why didn't Isaac suggest that? But it really shows how John's mind works differently than Isaac's does. Yeah. I think John's able to think more abstractly than Isaac. Yes. So that is what I think was showcased here. And honestly, I think they'd be like a power team. And they are. Yeah, they do work together quite a bit. But like you meld those two minds together. They're probably like a superhero in space. (laughs) (laughs) Ed and Kelly tell Gordon about what happened and what they had to do. Gordon is surprised that he'd be selfish enough to risk the timeline, but tries to put them at ease by saying that they did the right thing, no matter how hard it was. They then take a moment to recognize how long it's been since just the three of them sat together like this. As an orchestral version of That's All I've Got to Say ends the episode. So Gordon lets Ed and Kelly off the hook here. I thought a little too easy, man. Yeah, by saying that they did the right thing and... I couldn't help but think that while the episode's been juggling the there is no right answer, is that here to also let the episode off the hook by suggesting to viewers that they did the right thing? I was surprised Gordon wasn't more upset. I was too. It seemed very casual for what had just occurred. And I felt like that reaction from him is supposed to be like, oh, there's no lasting tension from this. It's all good, even though Ed and Kelly have to deal with the fact that they have that knowledge. It's all good from Gordon's perspective. One thing Mark brought up, he's like, Gordon is one month into the time he was on Earth. Yes. So like his mind and brain are in a different place than he was 10 years in. Oh, absolutely. So he's probably like, yeah, crazy that happened. But you know what? It's okay. Like, obviously, duty and being a union officer and... I have to think Gordon was so, I mean, I from lasting impressions, what I got is Gordon so badly wanted to be with Laura. Mm-hmm. To have an idea that he had a life with her, she married him, she was pregnant, she they had a kid named Edward, he had this whole career. Like, I'm assuming they told him all that. They did, yeah. But I think that also answers your question from earlier of, is this cell phone holding him back from any other relationships in this time? I don't think it is. If he's this willing to accept that, like, oh, that's a possible future that might have been, but I don't need that. I don't buy it. I just feel like based upon how hooked on Laura he got, 
and that he still has a memento in his room to this day that he sees when he's synthesizing breakfast or whatever. Like, it's just hard for me to believe that he isn't disappointed in the slightest that, like, he didn't get a chance to live that life. I had some of those feelings as well. This is the first time I feel like it wrapped up in a way that it was very quick. Yeah. And felt kind of like, well, wait a second. But I don't know. Again, the show does that thing where it could come up later when they're in an argument. And I could see Gordon being like, yeah, like you took away my family. Or like you said, maybe the family thing will come up. And there's a different timeline where Gordon's getting to live that life. But it's, I guess the way that I was looking at it is he has that headspace of one month into staying in a cabin in the woods. (laughs) Versus 10 years of building a life with somebody. Yeah, it's going to change your perspective completely. Yeah, but it's hard as a viewer to separate those two when you just see how passionately he was fighting for that family. But I think that it makes you think about it. It makes you think about like, what is the right thing? You think about the whole butterfly effect. Gordon could have changed the course of history. And, you know, he was arguing about, oh, well, like, look, I mean, you're still here, so it's fine. Like nothing really changed, but... Which they had a perfect counter for because everything was still in flux. Yeah. I just thought Gordon may have been a little more disappointed about it. Maybe if there was like a scene. I don't know. Maybe this is me projecting about how I felt Gordon should feel. And that's not how Gordon should feel. Like him leaving the room and just like looking disappointed or something just to kind of put in like a. He has to kind of grieve that, but he also never experienced it. So maybe Ed and Kelly are the ones who have to grieve that. Right. I think that's part of one of the reasons why the episode ends with that orchestral version of that song. Yeah. It's almost like that lingering sadness. I feel like even Gordon is disappointed about how it went down, but he's on the Orville. He's back doing what he does. It's something he never experienced. And I just think it's something that's always in the back of his brain. So I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about it all. I'm sad for Gordon, but I also understand that messing up a timeline in a universe. That's the push and pull. He had his dream life, like literally. One version of him did and one version of his dream life. Yeah, that's true. Maybe he has different versions of his dream life. Who's to say he's not going to end up happier in this timeline? True. It's the whole philosophy of it. That's what this show does. It makes you think about like he could be just as happy in this timeline. That stuff technically never happened. That's so weird to think about time travel in general. Like they saw a future, but then they went back and erased it. Possibly. I know. I know there's so many different ways it could go. That's the tough thing with anything time travel related, because we know how the show has suggested time travel works up to this point. Yeah. That doesn't mean at some point they can reinforce the alternate timelines thing that there are a multiverse of different timelines all happening at the same time. And there are universes where that is still playing out the way that we saw it. Yeah, I guess it's just a wait and see. Maybe it'll come up again. I have a feeling the show does a good job of like those threads that go through. And I do think you're right that this will come up again. The family line seems foretelling. So we shall see. We shall see. What is your big takeaway from this episode? I don't have as much to say about this episode as I normally do, but I really love the special effects. I know I say that every time, but that nebula was so pretty. I loved it so much. So kudos on that. It's just a pretty show to look at. And there was a shot I forgot on the bridge when they were Ed Kelly and Tala were leaving. 
and Bordis goes to sit in the captain's chair. And you can see in like, I like to call it the sunroof of the bridge. Yeah. They had like a moon, what looked like. And then there was like a planet. And it was just like a really pretty shot that was not needed. But I loved it because you get to see pretty space things. And so I appreciate those details. I really love the Isaac and Charlie storyline. I know it's more of a B plot for this episode, but... I very much enjoyed that they got to have some one-on-one time and that Isaac got to say his piece and I feel like Charlie got to say her piece a little bit too. Mm -hmm. It was funny. The writing was really good. I enjoyed the back and forth between them, the bar scene, the realtor. It was light, but it was very like, it just felt organic and I liked how that all flowed. So I very much enjoyed Isaac and Charlie's story this episode. I feel conflicted about the Laura and Gordon thing. If you're curious and haven't listened to the Lasting Impressions episode, I even feel like I need to go re-listen to it because I don't remember everything that I've said, but I had a lot of thoughts about that episode. And I don't think my problem is necessarily with Gordon and Laura. I think when Laura had her whole, hey, I get it. We were like meant to be transcended centuries love. So her accepting that and saying, I get it, I think helped me a lot with resolving some issues I had with it. Mm. Because I don't inherently think Gordon's a creep. I don't think Gordon is coming from a creepy place. But as a woman who does content on the internet, I've experienced a lot of things and it makes me nervous when it's like parasocial. It's the best way to feel about like he found a cell phone. He made a simulation and erased her boyfriend from the simulation. Well, that was where things got really weird. And even within the episode was telling us that things were getting very weird. Yeah. And then Gordon, the future, goes and searches her out. He knew where she would be and already knew so much about her because he essentially went through her phone and then was able to interact with her and win her over because he had all this information already. Which could be seen as manipulative. But again, that's where intentionality comes in. And I want to make it clear. I don't think Gordon has impure intentions. It's supposed to be a very sweet type of thing. It gets muddied for me just because of my experiences doing what I do. And then also in the context of the show, it's very romantic. Mm -hmm. In the context, when you apply this filter to real life, it is horrifying. Totally understandable. Don't you ever feel like though Gordon was kind of lying to her for a really long time? No, (laughs) I don't. But he was a future spaceman. Yeah, he couldn't tell her. What is he going to do? What about all the stuff like, hey, I had your cell phone and I looked. I mean, would you want a partner who had access to your cell phone and like made a simulation about your life and then not tell you after the fact? I personally don't care. (laughs) Then You and I are very different in that way. But yeah, I guess it's one of those things where I view it from a different lens because of my personal experiences. Mm -hmm. And it makes it a little harder to view it as like a sweet romantic thing when there's been a lot of other things that kind of happen that can make it. Not so sweet and romantic in real life. Mm -hmm. But I did love the humor in this episode. It felt a little lighter than past episodes so far this season. I was really glad Gordon was so understanding at the end, but I still feel like he probably should have been a little more upset about it. But I guess he was in different headspace coming from a month versus 10 years. So it kind of makes sense. And you can go like, okay, like he understands the duty at this point. He hasn't had that life yet. But yeah, overall, I enjoyed the episode. And I have a feeling things might show up again in the future. And I do feel like there probably will be some repercussions or some follow up about what happened in this episode. And in the end, everything kind of worked out okay, Mm -hmm. except for the heartbreaking bit about Gordon not having his happy ending. So those are my thoughts. What are your thoughts on this episode, Rob? 
to probably no one's surprise, this is my new favorite episode of season three. Oh, season three. So it's, it's lasting. Lasting Impressions is still my favorite episode. Okay. But this is my new favorite one of this season. But it's for multiple reasons. It's not just that it's a follow-up to Lasting Impressions. That's obviously a factor. Mm-hmm. I never thought we would get a follow-up to it. It didn't seem like an episode that they would go back to. So I was super surprised to see them go back to it. But I was very happy to get that. Also, I just love a well-done time travel episode. And I think this was definitely well done. It gave us a lot of things to think about. Their time travel logic was pretty solid. I'm sure somebody can poke holes in something, but that's part of what just kind of accepting what they're doing with time travel is going to do. There's always going to be some issues here and there. And accepting those issues and moving on is what's going to make these episodes work better. So I don't linger on those too much. We did end up learning more about Charlie here, which is always good to get that additional character detail. And while I can't say that her and Isaac made progress, a little tiny little bit maybe, but not a ton, I did really love all of their scenes together. I think they're great on screen together. Mark Jackson got a lot of fun stuff to do in this episode, and he was great the entire time. Between them and some of the stuff from Jay Lee, those scenes earlier that we talked about, Mm -hmm. I probably got more laugh out loud moments from this episode than any others this season. And that's not to say that the other episodes should have had more laughs. And it's also not to say that this episode forced more comedy because I don't think it did. We've talked about that evolution of the comedy and how it's just becoming more organic. And nothing here felt like a bit for bit's sake. It all felt very organic. and It was all very funny. Mm -hmm. And I like the tone of this episode a lot. I'm not sure if I can definitively say that I have a favorite character on the Orville. Mm -hmm. But Gordon's a top contender for me and he kind of always has been. And I think this is one of Scott Grimes' best performances of the show. Mm -hmm. He does some great stuff here. Lastly... I had one kind of concerning question. I know I said I don't poke a lot of holes in time travel and their logic behind it. Uh Uh-huh. But I think they accidentally created another paradox. Uh Uh-oh. So Gordon sent the hail six months after arriving in 2015. (gasps) Oh! The Orville goes back to pick him up one month after he's been in 2015. So they picked him up before he ever sent the message. And that is a paradox. Because how would they have known to go pick him up if he never sent the message, but they never sent the message because they picked him up too early and oh no. It's in flux, Rob. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. That's a good question. But it's also, how did the Kalon know about the Aronoff device? You know, the ripples. That I feel like is something we're going to learn about in the future, but. There's ripples. I mean, time travel in general is just something you shouldn't mess with. And I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. Like, I'm not a time travel expert. I almost wish that they fixed one of those two things. Like he either sent the hail one month after being there or they picked him up six months after he was there. If they had just tweaked one of those two, it all lines up perfectly. I think that it was on purpose, though, because specifically John says it's not the right time. We're here a month. So I feel like maybe they aimed for that and it's just what it was. And maybe because John said that something will come of that. Maybe there are unforeseen ramifications. Yeah. Oh, the ripples, the ripples, the ripples through time. (laughs) Before we get out of here, we have one more thing to do. Because Katie's husband, Mark, is also a big fan of the Orville and always leaves us with his one sentence review. 
Dude, if I could just synthesize an egg salad sandwich whenever and wherever I want, I wouldn't. Quantum Drive is a production of The Geek Generation. If you like this show, be sure to check out our other podcasts on The Geek Generation Network at thegeekgeneration.com. If you'd like to support the show and get access to exclusive bonus podcasts along with other perks, you can visit our Patreon campaign at thegeekgeneration.com slash support. You can follow Quantum Drive on Twitter at Quantum Drive Pod and me at the Rob Logan. You can follow me on Twitter at PlayKatiePlay and on Twitch at KatiePetersPlays. And Katie is spelled K-A-T-I-E. Please rate the show and write a review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we may read your review on an upcoming episode. Finally, questions and comments can be sent to quantumdrive at thegeekgeneration.com. We're out of here for now, but we'll see you soon in In the the future. future.